Good evening. Welcome to Regeneration. Oh, sorry, I turned the red light on in the balcony. I thought it was turning on the hall light. I was just trying to bring some ambiance into the room. But <clears throat> we're going to be wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount um, tonight. Uh, kind of sad because it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Um, but we are, and then we'll start on something new. So, series of questions to ask you. Who's, who has been the most influential person in your life? I mean, besides me, um, who's been... Okay. What, what was it about them that was so influential? Right? How did they influence you? And the fact is, is that we are influenced by the words and actions of others. Whether you like it or not, we are. And all of us have good examples and bad examples in our life. But the key thing is that we are actually free to choose who is going to influence us, aren't we? We can decide who will influence us and teach us how to live. And knowing that, and knowing that Jesus offered himself to be our teacher, can you imagine standing before Jesus and trying to explain why you didn't do what he said was best for you to do? Kind of a, a weird situation there, right? And the focus on the rest of this chapter is discipleship to Jesus. And it's the practice of routine obedience from the heart. It's about becoming a continual student to Jesus, being helped by him, being taught by him, being led by him in every aspect of your life, which leads to an inward transformation. And this inward transformation will not only be characterized by love at the core of your, your being, but it will also cause me to live my life as Jesus would live it if he were me. I live my life as he would, no matter what my circumstances are, regardless of my financial circumstances, what I do for work, the physical body that I occupy, the relationships I'm involved in, no matter what. And in the previous chapters, we've looked at the teachings of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount. And hopefully you, you got a better appreciation of the power and the message of Jesus in the past several months. And I also hope you got a better sense of how brilliant Jesus is. He's invited us to a magnificent kingdom under his rule. And we place our faith and trust in Jesus. And he replaces our anger, our contempt, our lust, our condemnation, our judgment with a genuine love for God and for one another. And this is the process called discipleship. The process of learning from Jesus how to live my life as he would live my life is done by a daily surrender to his rule in our lives. So in, in your business dealings, how would Jesus conduct your business affairs? How would Jesus negotiate a business transaction you're involved in? What issues would be crucial to Jesus? What projects would Jesus tackle with the resources you have? There seems to be a mystery about discipleship, but I think it's rather simple. The simple question to ask yourself is whether you are or are not a student of Jesus. And let's just put aside some things for now, whether uh, whatever those doubts or confusions may be. Maybe you don't even know if you're a Christian. Maybe you don't aren't aren't very, very clear about whether you're saved or not. Or or maybe uh, you're more Calvinistic in mind and, and you're thinking like, well, am I chosen or not chosen? Let's just put all that sort of stuff aside. Put aside that you feel that you've sinned too much to gain anything with God. Put aside anything that confuses you about being a Christian or a disciple of Jesus. Put it all aside. Just simply ask yourself, are you a student of Jesus? That's the only question you have to ask yourself. Because you can still be a disciple of Jesus, even if you're incompetent, if you're just a beginning student, just hearing 
Jesus' name for the first time, you can still be a disciple. You don't have to have all your stuff together to be a disciple. God will take you as raw as you are and he'll lead you through that process and and mature you through a process. Discipleship is about character transformation more than anything else, right? It's about becoming like Jesus from the inside out. So it's not about what stage you're in when you, you consciously decided to be a disciple. You just have to decide. So Jesus' teaching in the latter half of chapter 7 is on hypocrisy. And he tells us to watch what people do and pay little attention to what people say. Why? Because what you do reveals the kind of person you really are. And in, the la- in this last section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us four pictures to contrast people who simply say with people who actually do. The first picture is in verses 13 through 14. It's the way through narrow and wide gates. The second picture is verses 15 through 20. It's about the fruit of the good tree and bad trees and the wolves in sheep's clothing. The third picture is verses 21 through 23. And this is about those who substitute substitute deeds in Jesus' name with those who do the Father's will. The last picture is 24 through 27. It's about the house on the rock and the house on the sand. Let's go through the first picture first. Verses 13 through 14, chapter 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Oftentimes people believe that the narrow gate is speaking of doctrinal correctness. They believe that, oh, your doctrine is too liberal, it's too wide, and God says that His way is narrow. Yes, his gate is narrow, but it's not about doctrine. It isn't about having correct doctrine. The narrow gate is all about obedience to Jesus and the trust we have in Jesus in order to obey him. It can't be doctrinal correctness, right? Why? Because many people who don't understand anything about correct doctrine end up putting their faith and trust in Jesus, don't they? There are also many who do understand correct doctrine, but they have hearts filled with anger or a refusal to forgive or they have lust in their heart or contempt or hatred. Because even Satan and the demons know what the correct doctrine is, right? So how can that narrow gate be correct doctrine? They're just not being obedient to Jesus, right? Satan and demons, they know correct doctrine. They just don't know about obedience. There are people who seem to know all the right things to believe, but are really doing what they want to do and not submitting to what Jesus has instructed them to do. And the narrow gate is doing the will of God. Entering the correct, narrow way is obedience to Jesus. And the broad gate is simply doing whatever I want to do, whatever others want me to do. And all of that leads to a disastrous life. Then Jesus points out the second illustration with wolves in sheep's clothing and bad trees bearing good fruit. Verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. A wolf in sheep's clothing tries to fake discipleship. It tries to fake discipleship by outward deeds, but what they truly are on the inside, inside their heart is hidden until they simply see an opportunity to exercise their true heart of evil. Jesus warns about these false prophets who look to mislead those in the flock. They look like one of us. Just you and I. But inside, they're controlled by their own evil desires. They look to prey on the sheep. 
They look to take advantage of the sheep. They look to destroy the sheep. They're just looking to exploit the sheep for their own purposes. And do you know how you identify these false prophets? You, you watch for what they do, and you pay a little attention to what they say. What they do will unveil who they really are on the inside, and maybe not right away, but over time it'll show. So I encourage you to investigate not just what a leader says, but more importantly, what a leader does. You pull back that sheep's clothing on those who desire to lead. And you have a right to dig into a leader's life. And if they don't want you to, or they're not forthcoming about themselves, or they're trying to hide something, or they don't want to talk to people too too much because they don't want you to get close to them, or they don't want you to talk to people close to them like their spouses or children, those are red flags. You may be dealing with a wolf. And Jesus uses another example of this. This action speaking louder than words teaching with the fruits of the trees. Verses 16 through 20. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. The reason why Jesus teaches that only good trees bear good fruit is because obedience and discipleship can't be faked. They can't be phony. And the proof is in your fruit. What is your life producing? Are you producing a life of obedience? Because that is what good fruit is. And you can only produce good fruit, can only produce obedience, if you are the person capable of producing such fruit. Your heart, who you are on the inside, the kind of person you are reveals your fruit. And like fruit trees, we manifest our very nature in what we produce, what our actions are. A grapevine doesn't produce figs, right? So the kind of person you really are doesn't produce something that you aren't. And if you are a disciple of Jesus, you will produce those actions. And if you aren't, you won't. So what we do reveals the kind of person we really are. You, can't, you can only fake it for so long because eventually it's harvest season, right? And people will be able to see your fruit. So Jesus takes it a step further in the third illustration and, and says that even if you call him your Lord and do things in his name, that that's not all there is to being a disciple of Jesus. Verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The leaders and Christians to be trusted are not the ones who simply call Jesus Lord. They're not simply the ones who are spiritually gifted. Church, regeneration, don't be blind to this. It's not about gifting. The Bible is clear as to what to look for in people in leadership and people who call themselves Christians. You look at the fruit of their life, not the fruit of their ministry. Don't look at whether they are spiritually gifted and call Jesus Lord. The ones to be trusted are the ones who actually learn to do what Jesus taught was best. They live a life of obedience. They don't settle for anything less, and neither should you. It's not about how good someone's teaching is. It's not about whether they can prophesy, give a word of knowledge or, or wisdom, speak in tongues or interpret tongues or whatever. You look for someone who is obedient to God. It's not about gifting. Look for the one who does the will of God. 
Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father in heaven. The obedient leader is the one whose life you can see the will of God being done and you can observe their fruit. The will of God is the whole Sermon on the Mount. Because some of you are wondering, well, what's the will of God? It's the golden rule that Jesus refers to back in verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And something about the nature of fruit, it doesn't hide, right? Fruit does not hide. Fruit, by its very nature, wants to be found. Why? Because it wants to reproduce itself. Otherwise, it renders itself no more, right? It's extinct. So, whether it's the color of the fruit, the scent of the fruit, the, the sweetness, everything about fruit shows that it wants to be revealed, so if you have a leader that doesn't desire to be vulnerable or transparent or be, be uh, uh, available to kind of like share their life, watch out. This is not a good sign. See, that is contrary to, to the nature of a healthy tree. That is contrary to the nature of a healthy leader. And then we get to the last picture Jesus illustrates, verses 24 through 27. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was the fall." The person who hears Jesus and does what he says builds an indestructible house. The disciple of Jesus who hears Jesus and does what he says, he says, constructs an indestructible life. So no matter what rains or floods or winds of life come by, you won't be knocked down because you built your life on Jesus. So now we're at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus gave this talk that, that changed the whole world. And, that, and you'll notice that there are two groups listening to him, right? Back to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And seeing the multitudes, here's the first group, the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. That's the second crowd. Then he opened his mouth and taught them. So we have one group, the disciples, devoted followers, and then we have the multitude, the crowd, the admirers. And they were very impressed by Jesus, otherwise they wouldn't be there, right? So much so that their reaction is recorded in the last verses of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 28 and 29. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he had taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Notice how there was a whole lot of admiration for Jesus. The people were astonished at his teachings. But while he was teaching, something happened to some of them that was more than admiration. There was a group of disciples there, but I'm sure he made more from that situation or from that talk. And there's a big difference between admiring and following, isn't there? According to the Gallup organization, the most admired person to U.S. Americans. Can anyone take a guess except for Scott because he guessed it in the first service? Anybody? Who? Lincoln. I hear Lincoln. Anyone else? You're right. It's Mother Teresa. And even though she's the most admired person to U.S. Americans, how many can say that they followed her? 
that they were her disciples. How many have lived among the poor, the sick, the orphan, the dying, like she did? You know, an admirer is impressed while a follower is devoted. An admirer applauds while a follower surrenders their life to do what that person did. So back to the mountainside where Jesus just delivered the most life-changing speech ever. There's a group of people that, that were in complete astonishment, right? But no doubt there was a group of people that were ready to commit to following him. And there were those whose minds were racing, thinking like, this, this is what my life is supposed to be about. What th- this Jesus guy, what he's been talking about on this mountain, everything that I've done wrong in my life can be forgiven, my entire past cleansed. And even though I have all this junk in my life, God wants a relationship with me? And I, I can know God personally. I don't have to worry anymore. I don't have to fear anymore. I don't have to be enslaved to anger, to obsessive desires, to, to unhealthy habits or relationships. I don't have to be um, dealing with this greed that I have in my heart. I have a purpose now. I have a godly purpose for my life to take part in sharing the good news to redeem the world. I've been given a confidence of life beyond death so that I don't even have to fear death itself. I, I want this. I want what this Jesus guy has. And, and with their heart pounding with excitement and, and the prospect of being loved so deeply by the creator of the universe, just continuing to think, I want what this Jesus guy has. I want it more than anything anyone else can offer me. And I'll, I'll give up anything to follow him. I'll pay any price. I don't care what I have to do to follow this guy. Whatever he wants me to do, I'm doing it. I'll, I'll go wherever he wants me to go. I'll give whatever he wants me to give. I'll be, I'll be whatever he wants me to be. I, I'm just, I'm not one of the crowd anymore. I'm a follower. And as of now, I'm more than an admirer. I, I'm a fully devoted man of Jesus. And I'm, I'm going forward. And, and Jesus knew that his words, his life, would have a significant impact on some. And he continually challenged people to decide if they were going to remain an admirer or become a follower. And the choice was, was offered to them, right? Let's look at Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 23. How Jesus makes people make a choice. Verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I've kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come Follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. The rich young ruler was an admirer of Jesus, but didn't choose to follow Jesus because it interfered with his finances. And he didn't want to change. And the way of obedience necessitates change. Jesus does this with us. He asks us whether we are going to follow him or just admire him. And with that question, the proof is whether we are obedient to change. Choosing to change. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes his kind of life. A life of blessing, right? Going back to chapter 5, he said, Blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. That blessing was available to those who didn't even think that blessing was even possible for them to have. But Jesus tells them that the blessing is theirs for the taking if they want it. He talks about what it looks like. And then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Now, if you want this kind of life, here you go. Here it is. Here's how you get it. 
And then he gives the four pictures that involve that stark contrasting challenges to people, the narrow and wide gates of fruit, uh, the good fruit and the bad fruit and the wolf in sheep's clothing, uh, the people that substitute in Jesus names with the father's will, the house on the rock, the house on sand. Now, I want you to notice something about those four pictures. Did you notice that there's no third choice in any of them? There's no third choice. There's a narrow gate. There's a wide gate. There's no third gate. There's a good tree. There's a bad tree. No third tree. There's a true disciple or a false disciple, but there's no third option. There are people who do what Jesus said, or there are people who hear and know. However, they don't act on what they hear or they know. But there isn't a third category to that. There's a house built on the rock. There's a house built on sand. There's no third house. What does this all boil down to? It boils down to whether you are going to be wholly devoted to Jesus with your whole being from the inside out or you're not. That's it. There's no third option. Will you follow Jesus or will you just admire Jesus? And what does an admirer look like? Well, if you ask an admirer if they believed in Jesus, they would probably say yes. Yes, in my sort of way, he was a good teacher or he, he healed people. He was a cool guy. I, don't, I, don't, I can't find anybody out there who doesn't like Jesus as a person. Like if you just ask anybody, right, they, they all acknowledge him that he existed, uh, that he was a good guy. And they might even go to church. These admirers might even go to church. Some of them probably went to church for years. They may even volunteer once in a while and give sometimes. But, but they want to keep control of their life. And they don't want to surrender their control of their life. And if following Jesus means that they have to risk giving up something they don't want to give up, then they're probably not interested in following Jesus. Perhaps it means that their success at work is is less so that they can help uh, heal a a suffering marriage or perhaps changing their lifestyle so that they can invest more time with their kids or maybe humbling themselves to get help with an addiction or getting serious about studying scripture rather than just not picking it up for days or weeks on end. Or, or not sleeping around with someone they're not married to. Or, or getting help with an anger problem. But the thing is with an admirer is that they want to be able to tell God, no, that's mine. So they can admire Jesus, but they want to keep a distance so that they can keep living the way that they want to live it. Living life the way that they want to live it. And when their, their sin is more prevalent in their, their life, you'll, you'll, you might see them around church some more. Or they might give a little bit more. And, and with church folk, they can actually talk the talk. But in other types of envi- environments, like when they're on a business trip or when they're at school, they're not taking a stand with Jesus. And they talk Jesus talk at church or at church functions, but they'll do whatever they need to to fit in in other crowds. So they just kind of change like a chameleon. They just kind of do whatever they want to do. And there might even be this, this superiority complex within them because they can float around different crowds and change is necessary. But inside, it's a bit hollow because there's no commitment to anything except themselves. And maybe they'll rationalize with themselves why they haven't fully dedicated themselves to following Jesus. And it's because... They don't want to become self-righteous or they don't want to be hypocritical like the rest of the church. So they end up never really devoting themselves fully to God. Why even bother? Why do that? Why? It's such a waste. Wouldn't you rather be part of a community that is full of wholehearted, devoted followers rather than a community of admirers? 
You know, I, I personally, I'd rather be in a community or a church with just a few, a very few committed followers of Jesus instead of like hundreds or thousands of uncommitted followers of Jesus. Admirers of Jesus. I'd rather have just a small group. We have one service. We're dedicated, wholehearted followers of Jesus and like 10 services. This place is packed out, but we're all admirers. Why even bother? So ask yourself, are you a follower or are you an admirer? Let me try to paint a picture for you to portray the difference between admiration and devotion. And let me start by telling you the story of a a tightrope walker by the name of Charles Blondin. Charles Blondin was the first man to cross the Niagara Falls in 1859 by tightrope. So 1,100 feet up in the air, only being held by a three-inch hemp cord in front of 100,000 people in 1859. And if you want more details, you can look up the July 4th issue in 1859 of the Chicago Tribune. It's on page three. Yes, I'm that old. I just hide. I hide my age well. And so anyway, here's Charles. One bad dude, I might add, who who not only crossed the Niagara Falls, but he had such a confidence that he wanted to do other things more thrilling and exciting for people to see. So he did things like he, he brought a chair out. He balanced the chair on the rope and he got on top of the rope or on top of the chair. And he uh, he went out on the rope on another act and he started taking pictures of the crowd so that they can get his perspective. And he walked back. Uh, another thing he did was he, he brought a portable uh, cooker and he cooked a meal at, on the rope and then he lowered it down to the, the boat below for the passengers below. Um, he crossed blindfolded. He crossed uh, in a sack. He did it on stilts. He trundled a wheelbarrow. He did all these things and it was just like more dramatic each time. Can you imagine the drama of each step as, as these people watched his performances? I mean, it's life or death in each step, right? You're like, oh my gosh, look at that guy, right? He's blindfolded. He's not harnessed in. It's 1859, right? There's no safety net, right? He did these amazing feats and he walked the tightrope as one having authority and not as the scribes. Not as one who just studies and teaches about tightrope walking, but does it. And of course, if Charles asked the crowds if if they believed he could cross the tightrope, they would all answer with a resounding, yes, we believe, we believe you, we saw you. You did it blindfolded, you did it with a wheelbarrow, you did it on stilts. Of course we believe you, right? But what if he asked one of them to jump on his back? Changes things, doesn't it? Because he actually did. He actually did ask someone to jump on his back. He asked anyone in the crowd. Come on, I'll take you across. And at that time, I'm sure it was really quiet. And people were looking around on the ground, just kind of looking around or looking at who else was. Kind of like when you go to those luau's and like guys, when, when they dancers come out and pick you, you're like, mm. <laughs> come on. It's not a big deal, right? So, but then guys are just like, oh, or they pick up their kid. That's what I did the last time there was. So, but, but one guy, Harry Colkard, his manager, a guy that worked with him, that, that kind of like uh, helped him get all the shows and everything. He trusted Charles. He jumped on Charles back and across they went. Can you imagine Harry's adventure? Right? He's like in his ear and he's like, dude, um, don't drop me, man. Like, I'll, I'll be really mad if you drop me. 
And so across they went. The crowd goes ballistic and they're like, oh, man, that was incredible. And the crowd didn't get on Charles back, though, did they? Everyone admired Charles. Only one guy trusted Charles. Actually, there were two. The Prince of Wales was visiting in 1860 and Charles carried his assistant, Romaine Montan, <laughs> across the falls. And, and the prince and the other specta- spectators, they were just like breathless. They're like, oh, my God, like, look at this. This is crazy. And the prince was so stunned at the spectacle that that after they came down, he was like, don't ever do that again. And then Charles turns to him and said, you want me to carry you over the falls? And, and so he got upset. But anyway, over the years, millions of people saw this act. Millions. Everyone applauded. Everyone cheered. Everyone admired Charles. Only two trusted put their life in his hands. Harry Colkert, Romain Mautan. And Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mountain. Everyone in the crowd is amazed. Everyone in the crowd is astonished. There were a lot of fans. Many who cheered. Many who admired. Jesus never went up to anyone and said, admire me. Never. Jesus said, follow me. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Stop admiring me. Get on my back. Trust me with your life and I'll give you the ride of your life. So the question is, have you wholly devoted yourself to following Jesus? The question isn't if you admire Jesus. It's not even if you believe in him. Because even the devil and the demons believe in him. The question is whether you are following him. Are you obedient to him? This is the most important decision for you to make because do you know what goes on his back? Your sins. The guilt that you have. The shame that you have, whatever that can be used against you to separate you from God. Jesus wants to take all that stuff on himself. Everything that holds you back from a relationship with God, Jesus wants to take on himself. And and I know that there are some people who feel that their sin is too big or, or their past is too like haunting. There's just like a bunch of stuff back there or there's no way to get to such a spiritual place or that they're not worthy to be a follower of Jesus or a disciple of Jesus. But Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount and says, you know, your sin problem. It's actually much, much, much worse than you even think that it is. It's worse than you even thought. You thought that thou shalt not murder meant that as long as you didn't physically kill somebody. But the truth is, is that your heart's jacked up. It's a cesspool of anger, of hatred, of vengeance, of contempt that just oozes out of it. A a messed up life that causes you to have a messed up life. And you thought that no adultery meant that as long as you avoided intercourse with somebody else's spouse that you're okay with God. But the truth is that your heart is a cesspool of lust, of mismanaged, misguided, uncontrolled desire that has consumed your heart and taken control of you. And the problem is, is that we have a sin problem like the Niagara Falls of sin. And you can't clean yourself, but Jesus can. And Jesus can take care of that. He died on the cross for our bad choices. And he invites us to put the sins on his back. And he paid your debt so that the gap between you and God, that gap that is impossible to cross by your own good deeds like that rope, 
can be bridged by Jesus. Get on his back. Jesus will take you there if you confess your sins, if you repent, which means you ask God to forgive you, that you ask him to help you change. And Jesus wipes the slate clean if you will put your past sin, your, your guilt on his back. And it's not just your past, but it's also your present and your future. And this means that your life and your time, not yours anymore. Your energy, your resources, your security, your money, your savings, everything is Jesus. Not yours anymore. Your life isn't about stockpiling anymore. Your relationships and your interactions with them, uh, your allegiance, your mind, your thought processes, your language, your sexuality, your money, your emotions, your work. Everything is his. And you're thinking, I can't do that. I can't live Jesus life. I know I can't either. But Jesus is not asking you to live his life. He's asking you to live your life as he would live your life if he were you. Jesus is God, not you and I. Right. So we can't go on the cross and die for people's sins. We're not told to live Jesus life. We're told to live our life with him. Jesus is inviting us to ask him to come into our life and live within us and in turn show show us how to live that life and then in turn show somebody else. And as a disciple, I make other disciples by communicating who God is and the nature of the kingdom. And this mandate of making disciples is found in the Great Commission of Jesus in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And reading these verses, it becomes clear that the command word used in this text is not to go, but to make. A different way to reword this verse is to say, as you are going, make disciples. Are any of us here doing something different by going and making converts? Where making disciples is a secondary thing? And as a church, and I'm not just talking about us, but as a church as a whole, we wonder why so many people are confused about discipleship. Perhaps it's because we're not making them. We're focused on making converts instead of following what Jesus told us to do and make disciples. And there's a confusion that discipleship is only for Christians who've been Christians for a while. And this misunderstanding of what discipleship is has produced a very unhealthy culture of consumer Christians. Christians who enjoy the benefits of Jesus Christ's forgiveness and and their future in heaven, but they see no visible fruit of a transformed life as a student of Jesus here on earth right now. And I hope that this study on the Sermon on the Mount has brought more clarity to the role of God more clarity of ourselves and of the church in the process of becoming disciples of Jesus. And as we allow Jesus to apprentice us, we move beyond just having the faith in Jesus to having the faith of Jesus. And hopefully we begin to see the world as a God-bathed world full of wonder and life and, and not this new form of legalism or law-keeping. The call to discipleship is where our burdens are light and where we truly find rest for our souls. Let's look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Verse 28 says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And notice how Jesus described himself in this passage, how he describes his heart. And this is Jesus called to discipleship. And Jesus is so tender in this call. He's not heaping more uh, expectations on you. He's not heaping more of these 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 expectations on people who are already burdened. Some of you are already so guilt ridden, so shame guilt, so so shame ridden that you don't need more, do you? I know I don't. And and notice these three command words that he gives. He says, "Come, take, and learn." And these are really important words relating to discipleship. God will not make you do anything. He's not going to force you to do anything. But he invites us to come. He invites us to take. He invites us to learn from him, our master. And consider these three words as you reflect upon your obedience or disobedience to him. And this subject of obedience is really important to grasp because the difference between obedience and disobedience is huge. And and the way of obedience necessitates a change in my life. And, and notice there are only two camps, right? Obedience, disobedience. All of humanity falls in these two camps. Those who follow him, those who reject him. There's no third option. There's no third gate. There's no third road. There's no third tree. There's no third house. It's not going to be where, you know, some guy off to the side, way out there, who's polite, he's successful, he's nice, he's respectable. He's a distance keeper who's admiring Jesus from afar, but he's withholding his devotion where God says, yeah, come on, not going to happen. The question is, where are you? The the decision is yours to make. Will you lay all your junk upon Jesus back and cross that tightrope with him? And there may be some of you who have never really made that decision to get on Jesus back and walk that tightrope. And there's some who have just admired Jesus from afar and never risked committing your life to him. And you've never really confessed your sin or repented of your sin and wholly devoted your life to Jesus Christ. And I want to address those of you who fall into this camp. I want to give you a chance to to make that commitment now and express it by just in your mind. It's between you and God. And say, God, I'm coming out of the crowd. I'm I'm. I'm crossing the line from admirer to follower. I'm not playing games anymore. No more half donkey, because I don't know if I can say the other thing. I, I, I've, I've never really devoted my life to following Jesus, and I express I, I want to do that tonight. And if that's your decision and that's your intent, then, then pray that. And this is just between you and God. It, it's the most important decision that you're ever going to make. And to be a disciple of Jesus, we're not looking for converts. And I'm, I'm talking about people who want to know more about Jesus, followers, disciples, right? Who want to be students of Jesus, not just saying the prayer and that's it. Oh, I got my fire insurance. I'm going to heaven. It's so much more than that. You can occupy the kingdom right now in Jesus name. You can do amazing things right now in Jesus name. And as a community, we support each other by going forward and asking what Jesus wants from our lives. And then there are those who have taken that step across uh, as a follower, but but there are things in your life that you haven't completely surrendered to him. Things in your life that God is convicting you about. And, and they have to be dealt with. So as you pray in your head, because this is between you and God. Can you pray that you want to deal with those issues? Enough. Now, now, if you've prayed those things, 
can you come talk to me afterwards? This is, I guess, your, the scary part. And that you have to actually let somebody know. And, and talk to me or talk to someone that was on the worship team or handing out bulletins or serve behind the cafe or, or somebody here that um, you, you can just ask, you know, are, are you a Christian? Can, can you pray for me? And, and get in touch with us. You know, fill out one of those prayer cards and, and fill out your information there because I'd love to keep in touch with you throughout the week just to see how things are going. And if you don't have a Bible, just take one. There's one in the pew. Those are for you. Take one. And consider plugging into a home group. There's a, there's a bulletin that was handed out to you. There's a bunch of home groups there. And, and contact me or a staff person. Our, our information, our emails, our phone numbers are on the website, regenerationweb.com. And let's just walk through this thing together. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love. Thank you that you don't make a bunch of hurdles for us to jump through in order to get to know you. That the narrow gate is not correct doctrine, because for some of us, that would just be so daunting to try to figure out what's right to believe and what's, um, you know, what's 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 not right. And but we know that you are calling us to obedience and that the correct doctrine will sort itself out as long as we are obedient to you. And there's this this call to obedience throughout the last half of uh, chapter seven. We ask, Lord, that you would minister to us in that way. For those uh, that are on the fence, God, I pray that you would uh, continue to speak to them through your Holy Spirit. God, for those who have decided to follow, I pray that you would protect them. For those that are at a distance still admiring, Lord, your love is still for them. It's not that you've quit on them any time in their life or will ever quit on them. You desire to have them follow you. And I pray, Lord, that you would use us as a reflection of your love to continue to love those people. In Jesus' name, amen.